If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we just got back to Ecuador. What a couple of weeks that was. And the night that we did the um, inbox of oddities from the hotel in Orlando, Mm -hmm. we were in the in the bar uh, after we recorded that. Uh, I know, big surprise. And we were we were asking the uh, person that was working there recommendations for food. She said, well, if you like Dominican food, there's a really good place uh, in the gas station. And I thought, boy, you're really selling this. I thought you were going to tell the story of the guy who was harassing her. Oh, that was a whole different, a whole different oh, thing. Oh, man. That guy. Wow. Yeah. He had had a few too many. And by a few, I mean for months now. Yeah, I would say a, a pretty good chunk of his life, he's had too many. Yeah. Um, he was staying at the hotel, and they said that he was there on some kind of a business trip, and he was at the bar every night since October, yeah. just being annoying. So we skedaddled out and tried to find that gas station Dominican food and had very little luck there. It reminds me of the time, though, that I think I was at Duncan, and... <laughs> and uh, there was a big backup. Their food delivery was a little bit slow. And uh, so I pay for it. And the the girl at the window says, yeah, just pull up next to the dumpster and we'll bring you your food. <laughs> they have a really appetizing way of selling things sometimes. You know it. Did I show you that video of the Dunkin' Donuts employee feeding the raccoon? I love that video. And the raccoon knows that if he goes to the drive-thru window and stands on his hind legs, he's going to get a donut. And they're not just giving him those stupid pink icing donuts either. You are so vitriolic when it comes to those pink icing donuts. You know what makes pink icing donut worse? Pink icing donut with sprinkles. What is it about the pink icing donut that upsets you so? I would rather eat an old tractor seat. (laughs) And believe me, coming from a farming community, we often were faced with that option. Anyway. Who's going to go first this week? Would it be okay if I did? Sure. 
There is a dark and mysterious gravestone. I already like how this is starting. It's located in Connecticut. It's been there for over 120 years, and it has fascinated and confused many. In the town of Deep River, Connecticut, beside the tranquil Connecticut River, there exists a cryptic and haunting gravestone that is not just intriguing, but perplexing. And it has been that way for both locals and curious visitors. The unassuming marker stands alone. It's discreetly positioned on the eastern fringes of the historic Fountain Hill Cemetery. And it's about the size of a shoebox. It's not very big. Okay. And it bears a single cryptic inscription. XYZ. Gosh, this sounds familiar. Did this come up on like a list of creepy tombstones I, we had talked about? I or think something? I did a uh, a topic on unexplained epitaphs, and, and maybe I included that in it. Yeah, we didn't get into it, but I do remember it briefly coming up. The mysterious epitaph etched deeply and crudely into the stone's weathered surface is mysterious and unexpected. It's become the epicenter for a captivating local legend, a story that is uh, cloaked in obscurity and darkness. Can you hear that wind? That is wild. Right on cue. The tale of the XYZ stone begins on a bitterly cold December night back in 1899, when the Deep River Savings Bank found itself in the crosshairs of a band of would-be bank robbers. The town had received wind of the impending heist, and in their foresight, they, they hired a night watchman. This guy was named Harry Tyler, and he was not to be trifled with. Tyler possessed a steely resolve and also a shotgun, so those, that's a dangerous combination. As one of the robbers attempted to breach the bank's formidable defenses, Tyler's shotgun could be heard erupting in the darkness quickly extinguishing the life of this would-be thief. Now, this clash between the unyielding Tyler and the ill-fated robber marked the birth of the XYZ legend. So, he blows this guy away with a shotgun in the middle of the night, and the thief's lifeless body was lying on the floor. They quickly collected it, took it to the morgue, and it stayed there for days unclaimed. So his true identity remained a mystery. There were, there were no pieces of identification on him, mm -hmm. and nobody came back to get him. In a pretty decent gesture of charity by the town, they buried this guy in a cemetery plot that was donated uh, near the Erie Railroad tracks, not far from the scene of his final fateful act. But it was at this point that an anonymous letter arrives, and its script was delicate and unmistakably feminine. The writer's request was both simple and peculiar that the grave be marked solely with the cryptic letters XYZ. And the cemetery obliged, and thus the unadorned stone was placed at the burial site on the very eastern edge of the cemetery, right next to the railroad. Rail <laughs> right next to the railroad tracks. As the years passed, the uh, mystery of XYZ only deepened, and soon after the burial, things got even weirder. Every year on the anniversary of the death of 
whoever XYZ was, a mysterious woman shrouded in mourning black silently would appear and make her way to the grave. Is there a death date on the stone or just the letters XYZ? Just XYZ. That's the only thing oh, okay. there. So it's got to be someone who was personally connected, or I should say, it's likely someone who was personally connected because they know the date of the death. Exactly what I thought, too. Okay. And with each passing year, she followed the same haunting path. This spectral figure would emerge from the early morning fog along the deep river landing. She would traverse the desolate railroad tracks until she reached the grave. And then with solemn reverence, she would gently lay a bouquet of freshly picked wildflowers on the weathered gravestone. These humble offerings seemed to carry a weight of unspoken sorrow and an enduring devotion to whoever it was that was buried under the earth. And her visits persisted for more than 40 years. Wow. And although her visits were witnessed by scores of locals over the years, her identity remained as elusive as that of the man that she apparently was mourning. So who was she? Her secret remained hers alone, vanishing with her when she made her final ghostly appearance sometime in the 1940s. I think it was his mom. You think, you think it was his mom? Mm -hmm. what, what leads you to that? I don't know. I just feel like a spouse might feel embittered by their dumb actions leading to their death. Mm. And a mom would just feel that loss. Oh, that, I don't know. That's very insightful. Oh, thank you. Speculation swirled, giving rise to numerous theories and whispered tales that uh, were shared throughout the generations. Uh, was she a long-lost lover, forever bound to her beloved by an unbreakable bond that transcended death? Eh, or, Mom. <laughs> or perhaps a partner in the ill-fated heist and was haunted by the specter of her own involvement in um, what ultimately happened that evening. Oh. Perhaps seeking redemption on some level. Like a Bonnie and Clyde type thing. Only one of them survived. Right. So the town of Deep River has become intertwined with this mystery of the grave, and children over the generations have heard whispers and lingering of lingering curses. Uh, so they began leaving small offerings on the gravestone, coins, or flowers, or little toys, or trinkets would find their way to this unadorned stone, apparently offerings to appease the restless spirit of this long-forgotten bank robber. Fountain Hill Cemetery has changed into kind of a place of pilgrimage, attracting more visitors than any um, other place in the town. Uh, it's the, the curiosity and the allure of the unknown and the captivating aura of mystery continues to draw people in from all over the place. They come not just to pay their respects to this unknown man. I don't know if respect is the word to use, mm. but they want to see the XYZ marker and they want to hear the stories from locals. Though the precise date remains uncertain, the true identity of the man known as XYZ was eventually uncovered through painstaking research in old newspaper archives. His name was Frank Howard, and he was a professional criminal with a slew of aliases, yet it's the the mysterious moniker XYZ that has endured, a symbol of the profound mystery that once held Deep River in its grip. And the original Deep River Savings Bank has long since vanished. 
But the tale persists, immortalized, at the Citizens Bank on Main Street. I guess it's where, where the Deep River Bank had been. It's now a Citizens Bank, or is as, as, as of now. There's a somber display there. The very gun, the shell casing, and a photograph from that fateful night are on exhibit. Relics of a dark moment in a time long past. Oof. The gravestone, eternally marked with the cryptic XYZ in Deep River, Connecticut, is a relic from a bygone era when one single act of violence gave birth to over a century of legend. It's a reminder that certain mysteries, even when stripped of their anonymity, retain the power to captivate and haunt the imagination because we all love a good story of the unknown. My source information, Atlas Obscura, New England Historical Society, Connecticut Insider, The Hartford Current, findagrave.com, and New England Legends. Thanks to the very special cameo from the insane wind outside. It just kind of added to the whole ambiance, didn't it? Sure it sure did. It's a windy day up here in the Andes. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Here at the Box of Oddities, we strive to always forgive and forget and never hold any grudges. Unless, you know, you really fucked us over. This is the Box of Oddities. The Bajau people, also known as Sea Nomads, are a tribe of maritime Southeast Asia known for their remarkable diving abilities. They traditionally live on houseboats or in stilt houses, which are so cool, in various locations in the Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Now, their unique lifestyle revolves around the sea, and they are renowned for their extraordinary skills in free diving, often diving to great depths without the use of modern diving equipment. Now, by great depths, what do you mean? I'm getting there. I'm, I'm just all at Twitter with excitement. The sea nomads have a deep connection to the ocean, relying on fishing and harvesting marine resources for their sustenance, and this exceptional diving prowess, which allows them to gather food and other resources from the sea, like pearls and sea cucumbers. They've been observed diving to depths of over 70 meters and holding their breath for several minutes while hunting for fish and other marine resources. 70 meters. That's 229 feet? Yeah. That's like swimming from home plate at Fenway Park to uh, right center field. Oh, wow. Yeah. The Bajau people and their diving techniques and abilities have been passed down through generations with children learning to dive from a young age and honing their skills as they grow older. One of the most fascinating aspects of the Bajau's diving ability is their larger spleens. That doesn't sound healthy. It's a genetic adaptation that has been linked to their diving abilities. The physiological trait enables them to store more oxygen in their blood and hold their breath for extended periods, contributing to their exceptional underwater endurance. The spleen plays a role in storing and releasing oxygenated red blood cells. And the larger the spleen, the potentially more oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. And it shows, studies show that the larger spleens have enabled these bad, <laughs> these people to stay submerged for longer periods of time and dive to significant depths without the use of diving equipment. This genetic adaptation is thought to be an example of natural selection in response to the unique demands of the Bajau's traditional seafaring lifestyle, which, as I mentioned, heavily relies on diving for fishing and gathering marine resources. Now, this genetic adaptation observed in the Bajau people's spleens has provided valuable insights into human evolution and the ways in which populations have adapted to specific environmental and cultural pressures over time. It's literally evolution in front of our eyes. It's also sparked interest in understanding the genetic and physiological mechanisms behind the Bajau people's extraordinary free diving abilities. In recent years though, the traditional diving lifestyle has faced challenges due to environmental changes, overfishing and modernization. And that has led to the depletion of marine resources. Uh, overfishing and environmental degradation have led to a decline in the resources, which has directly impacted the Bajau people's ability to sustain their traditional fishing and diving-based livelihoods. And so because this is a, a long time ongoing uh, way of survival for this, this group of people. They have evolved these extra large spleens 
yeah. and um, are able to do things that uh, most people can't. It's amazing how things can evolve. Like I remember hearing about the uh, samurai crabs. Yeah, exactly. And how at one point in time, somebody noticed that these little crabs looked, or one or two of them looked like a samurai. So out of respect, they threw them back. And then over time, nature went, oh, if it looks like a samurai, it's not going to get eaten. And now there's a huge population of these crabs that look like samurai warriors. (laughs) Everything goes back to the crab. Pollution and habitat destruction has also led to severe issues for the Bajau people. Environmental pollution, including plastic waste and industrial pollution, has affected the environment where they live and work. Also, a loss of cultural practices. The environmental changes has contributed to the erosion of the people's cultural practices and traditional knowledge related to the sea. If you can't continue doing these cultural things because your environment is changing, you're going to lose those skills. Yeah, you're- and you're spleen's going to shrink right up. Nobody wants a shrinking spleen. In addition to this, rising sea levels and coastal development have led to the displacement of some Bajau communities, forcing them to relocate from their traditional coastal habitats. And this disrupts their connection to the sea and poses challenges as they adapt to new living environments. Efforts to address these environmental challenges often involve a combination of sustainable resource management, conservation initiatives, and community-based adaptation strategies to support the people and their unique and incredible seafaring culture. Despite these challenges, the Bajau people's diving abilities continues to be the subject of fascination and study, attracting attention from researchers and scientists interested in understanding the genetic and physiological adaptations. Wow. Yeah, this is getting crazy. Maybe maybe we should continue this later. Um yeah, that might not be a bad idea. Finish up your story and then we'll we'll take a break and hopefully the winds will calm down. Overall, the Bajau people and their diving abilities represent a unique and culturally significant aspect of the maritime communities in Southeast Asia, showcasing the remarkable ways in which human populations have adapted to their natural environments. And their spleens, specifically, have Mm. shed light on fascinating ways in which human populations have evolved to thrive in diverse and challenging environments, highlighting the complex interplay between genetics, culture, and adaptation. So do we know how long this culture goes back for centuries? Is it it a a millennium? How, How far back? A study by anthropologist Alfred Kemp Pallison compares the oral traditions with historical facts and linguistic evidence, and he estimates the dates of the ethnogenesis of the Bajau as 800 CE. Wow. So a couple thousand years. They've been around for a while. That is, that's crazy. And, and it makes sense in order for those types of dramatic biological changes to evolve. Right. Remarkable. Big thanks, by the way, to Allison, who sent me this topic and also promised that she would be sending us a short blurb about her favorite story from Box of Oddities Past for our next Freak Family Favorites. I'm going to hold you to that, Allison. And if you would like to do the same, just record your thoughts, your introduction to your favorite episode on your smartphone and email it to us at curator at theboxofoddities.com. I think the next one is... 
Thursday, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now, that thing in the middle. Well, it's a well-known fact that the U.S. Army uses robots to remove explosives and mines and to disarm weapons. This, of course, is to ensure the safety of the soldiers. However, the Army wasn't expecting this. Some soldiers have grown so attached to their robots that there have been several incidents where soldiers have risked their lives to protect them. So as you know, our home state is Maine, and our motto is Deer Ago, which means I lead. As Maine goes, so goes the nation. That's the saying. That's what they say, anyway. But there are a lot of states where other things happened, where things happened for the first time that weren't Maine. Let's talk about it. This is actually something that did happen in Maine. Oh. The city of York, Maine. I've been there. Was the first ever officially charted city in the history of the New World. York, Maine. I don't even understand what that means. It was the first city. No. The first officially chartered city. No. In the history of the New World. How did I not know that? I, I don't know. I just came across this myself recently. Also, Maine is demographically the oldest. Yes. Yeah, as far as people that live there. Uh, I think the youngest person there is like 62. We've talked about that before. (laughs) (laughs) But many states have their own first claims. The first sunscreen was invented in Florida. Well, that makes sense. And if memory serves me, that came from World War II technology. That is correct. It's amazing. What state had the first computer, would would you guess? California? That would be my guess, too. But nope. Iowa. What? <laughs> in Ames, Iowa. No. Yeah, it was a tech, a tech hub back in the day. Uh, 1937, a professor at uh, the Iowa State University, he was a physics professor. His name was John Vincent Atanasoff. He started working with, uh, what? well, what ended up being the world's first electronic computer. Wow. It weighed 750 pounds. Is that true? Yes. I believe it. The first brewery was started in New Amsterdam, now known as New York, in 1632. What? 1632. Wow. I know beer's been around a long time. In fact, that was one of the reasons why the pilgrims decided to stop in Plymouth. They had run out of food and, more importantly, beer. And so I I guess Plymouth was... The first beer run. I wonder if there was a Circle K open late at night when they got there. Alabama was the first state to make a 911 emergency call back in 1968. Before 911, zero was actually the emergency number across the United States. Okay, that makes sense. You call the operator. Call the operator. The operator would patch you through to the police. Sadie, I need the fire department. Quick. Would that get confusing if you had, like, party lines? Yeah, and especially if there were several people named Sadie. (laughs) Do you know where the first drive-thru in the United States was? I do not. Arizona. Oh, yes. Fort Huachuca. (laughs) Why do you know this shit? Well, it's because I remember now Fort Huachuca, which is not far from Tucson, um, they the military personnel were not allowed to get out of their cars. And so McDonald's just knocked a window on the side of the wall. And yeah, that's amazing. You want to get down, Luke? 
Oh, okay. What state had the first mall? Uh, instinctively, I want to say California, like... I wanted to say New York. Okay, that would work, too. I'm thinking more like San Fernando Valley mall culture, sure, maybe, sure. you know, like Valley Girl stuff. But but no, it's Minnesota. Oh, okay. Well, sure, because it's cold. Yeah. And you want to go inside. You don't want to have to walk from store to store outside. That makes sense. It opened in 1956. And again, due to soldiers coming back from the war, yeah, they didn't want to walk around outside in the cold and stuff. And the economy was booming. This makes so much sense. It was called the Southdale Center. It was the world's first ever fully enclosed climate-controlled shopping center. And that's still where the Mall of America is. So, Minnesota's very molly. Well done, Minnesota. Kristen sent us an email, uh, just a comment on your Deja Vu episode. Whenever I experience Deja Vu, I like to think that it's the universe telling me that I am exactly where I need to be. It's when I don't experience Deja Vu that I wonder if I've gone off track. Just a thought. Love you, freaks. I like that idea. I was listening to Box 608, and JG said something that gave me a t-shirt idea for you all. It would have an alien on it, dressed in a lab coat with a pocket protector and have mm -hmm. glasses on with tape in the middle. I'm listening. And it would say, my science is just broader than yours, <laughs> or something like that. I love it. You have full permission to use this however you want or in any variation. Glad to hear you two are safe. They then followed up with, hope your trip went well beside any weather delays. Mm, we had a few. We did. We did. And thanks for all the comments from people saying that they are enjoying the inbox of oddities. This is an opportunity for us to share in depth more details on uh, emails and messages and comments that we could not do before. We just didn't have time. And if you would like to contact us and share your story, email us. Curator at theboxofoddities.com. And I really love it when you send in your audio story. Record it on your smartphone and email it to us and you could end up on the next Inbox of Oddities. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey Matt, did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge.
Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. So I need to start this segment with a trigger warning because it's going to get dark. Oh, okay. I'm going to be pretty descriptive here. It's a crime scene of some sort. Okay. okay. All right. Just just want to give you a heads up. No, I do appreciate that. And my story uh, that I'll do after this starts dark, but ends nice. So just keep that in mind that you've got that to look forward to. Okay. Thank you. The first thing that we noticed was the stench. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, you weren't kidding about it starting dark. I remember we were walking, sometimes climbing, up the slope. As we hurried along, I was wondering where we were heading because it seemed so steep and impassable. This was no hiking trail, that's for sure. In the remote Isdalen Valley in Bergen, Norway, the tranquil beauty of the landscape hit a chilling mystery that's been baffling investigators and captivating the world for decades. It's November 29th, 1970, and a hiker stumbled upon a gruesome scene that would come to be known as the Isdal Woman Mystery. Okay. This gets weird. As the hiker ventured deeper into the valley, the serene isolation gave way to a horrifying sight. There... Partially hidden among the rugged terrain lay the charred remains of what appeared to be a woman. Her body was so badly burned that any immediate attempt at identification seemed hopeless. It's not the kind of thing that one hopes to stumble upon during a nature hike. Mm. The corpse was sprawled out in what's called a boxer's or fencer's position with its arms outstretched in front of the upper body. And this is a common position for bodies that have been burnt alive. Oh, okay. That's something I know now. The Isdal woman, as she would later be called, was surrounded by a collection of peculiar items that just deepened the mystery. There were two suitcases filled with clothing that were found nearby, but all the labels had been meticulously removed leaving no clues as to their origin. It was as if she had intentionally erased any traces of her past life. Or somebody did. Gosh, this really reminds me of the Somerton Man. That's the same thing I thought, too. When I came across the story, um, I, I thought it had real Somerton Man vibes. Indeed it do. Beneath the layers of ashes and destruction, investigators uncovered more oddities. A pair of glasses with non-prescription lenses. A cosmetic bottle with its labels removed. And a silver spoon engraved with the monogram A-A-K. So weird that all of the other identifying things would be removed and then a monogram spoon? Do you think it was a plant? I don't know. Throw people off? 
Authorities said the placement and location of the objects surrounding the body was strange. Quote, it looked like there had been some kind of ceremony. Oh. As the investigation unfolded, it became apparent that the Isdal woman had used numerous false identities during her stay in various Norwegian cities. Her chameleon-like ability to change her appearance through wigs and clothing uh, left a trail of confusion. What was she up to? Some witnesses came forward offering snippets of information that only deepened the mystery. They reported seeing her in the company of multiple men, often of different nationalities. Her behavior was suspicious, leading some to wonder if she was involved in some kind of espionage or perhaps illicit activity. Some clues were revealed through the autopsy, although maybe some of the information they got muddled the water a bit. The woman had ingested a substantial amount of phenobarbital, which is a powerful sedative. Carbon monoxide poisoning, likely from the fire that consumed her, and that obviously contributed to her demise, as well as being burned, I would think. At the start of the investigation, the woman's autopsy revealed a few key things about her. She had not ever been pregnant, for one. She had never given birth. There was a bruise on her neck indicating that she may have taken a serious fall or a blow, but she had not been ill. Additionally, they found 50 to 70 sleeping pills in her stomach, but not all of them had been fully absorbed into her bloodstream when she died. The autopsy concluded that she died from a combination of carbon monoxide poisoning and the sleeping pills along with the phenobarbital, and she may, in fact, have died by suicide. Mm. It seems like, I don't know, I get the whole sleeping pill thing. Sure. But you would have to still be conscious to light oneself on fire, and that that's not pleasant. Maybe she wanted to try to destroy evidence or, or somebody, I don't know, it just... To me, it seems more murdery than than suicidey. Sure. But the strangest of all things was a small diary that they found in one of the suitcases that was filled with cryptic entries in various languages interspersed with code words and symbols. It was clear that this was no ordinary case. <laughs> that reminds me of a meme that I saw the other day that said, I've been steadily working on a fake diary for a few years now. There's nothing I want more than after I die, people to go through it and go, the fuck? <laughs> oh, I love that idea. <laughs> this diary seemed to hold the potential to unravel the secrets of the Isdal woman's life. Its pages were filled with a baffling collection of symbols and ciphers and written messages in multiple languages, including German, French, and Norwegian. The text appeared to be a perplexing mishmash of seemingly unrelated words and phrases with code words interspersed among them. What's your detective mind telling you now? Well, I just have questions. Like, how do you know that the code words are code words and the other words aren't code words? Like, what what <laughs> tells you that those are code words? I just, I have so many questions. The complexity of the diary's contents immediately raised questions about its purpose. That's what I just said. People wondered if it was just a journal of the woman's daily life, documenting her thoughts and experiences as she traveled across the borders and adopted false identities. I know my journal that is like, today was kind of windy. 
uh, my love and I had breakfast on the balcony and then we went to the park. I know I write that in code. Do you? Uh, you yeah. don't want people to know. No. Should that fall into the wrong hands? Oof. Oof. But maybe this was something far more sinister, an encrypted record of secret or sinister activities that could shed light on the true nature of her mission. As investigators painstakingly examined the diary, they soon realized that deciphering its contents would be no small feat. Now, word of the diary spread, and amateur cryptographers and codebreakers from around the world took up the challenge. Yeah. Hoping to crack the code and unlock its secrets. And more recently, again, this happened in 1970, but over the past decade or so, Online forums are, have been buzzing with discussions and theories and attempts to decipher the diary's contents, but despite the efforts of all of the sleuths, both amateur and professional, the diary's code remains stubbornly resistant to decryption. Which makes me think it's just gobbledygook. <laughs> it could be. Maybe she wrote it after she took 70 sleeping pills. Right. The Isdal woman seems to have succeeded in her mission to keep her secrets hidden, even in death. Now, her passport, which had been used under the alias, and I love this name, Fenella Lorch. That is an excellent name. That adds a whole other layer of intrigue. It contained, her passport contained stamps from various countries, suggesting a well-traveled life. However, her true identity remained concealed behind this web, this elaborate web of deception. Mm. Fenella Lorch. <laughs> the investigation was further complicated by the fact that the Isdal woman had taken great pains to obliterate any identifying information from her belongings. As mm. I mentioned, labels had been torn off, clothing, serial numbers were removed from personal items, and even prescription labels were scraped clean. Sure. It was as if she had embarked on a mission to erase all traces of her past, or somebody did. As the case garnered national and international attention, theories began to circulate. Some speculated that she was a spy, citing her changing of appearance, her associations with men of different nationalities, and the mysterious diary as evidence. Another parallel to the Somerton Man... And keep in mind, this was 1970. We're right in the middle of the Cold War. So that theory seems extremely plausible, and that's kind of what I'm leaning toward. Others, though, believe that she might have involved, been involved in criminal activities, possibly connected to smuggling or organized crime. Her elaborate deceptions and evasion of authorities could support that hypothesis. I guess that would be my second guess. As the decades passed... The Isdal woman's case continued to captivate people's imagination. Theories, of course, ranging from espionage to international intrigue abounded, yet the diary remains as mysterious and undeciphered as it was on the day they discovered it. But 46 years later, in 2016, the Norwegian police decided to reopen this case. They were hoping that maybe one day they could uh, come back and do some research on who this body belonged to. So they, they buried her in a zinc coffin to help preserve what was left of her. Oh, okay. And in 2016, a complete DNA, a full DNA sample was found. They know that she's of European descent. 
and they're working with police forces across Europe to find a match. As of the recording of this episode, there's no match to any living human being. Her whole DNA profile isn't it's wow. coming up it's coming up blank. That's wild. But now evidence is surfacing that she had some strange connection to a Nazi allied Swiss banker. And this is developing now. It's fascinating. Maybe we'll finally get an answer. I'm really interested to learn more. The Isdal woman remains a tantalizing enigma, a puzzle with missing pieces that may never be found. Her story serves as a good reminder that even in the modern age of forensic science and surveillance, some mysteries are so deeply shrouded in darkness that they defy explanation. But I'm hoping that one day the Isdell woman will, um, will step out of the shadows and will finally know who she is. It's got to only be a matter of time. As more and more people submit their DNA to mm. international DNA databases, even things like Ancestry.com, there has got to be a match somewhere, some family member somewhere. But as of now, at least from what I've been able to find, nothing. Wow. I found this letter. Actually, it's a photo of a letter that was in her possession that seems, well, it's interesting. And it has a real Cold War era spy mission feel to it. Okay. Which I know you love. This hasn't been transcribed. I'm reading it from a JPEG, so bear with me here. Oh, okay. The return address is Galleries Lafayette. Spam slash ACI 40 Boulevard Houseman, Paris 9, France. Attention, ACI Liaison Officer. Dear Mrs. S. Langsign, please find enclosed a photo of a, to us, unknown cosmetic brand. As we are urgently interested to know what brand it might be and in what country it is manufactured, essentially also the name of the manufacturer, we ask you kindly to see whether you know it and inform us accordingly. Thank you in advance for your immediate help in this matter. We remain sincerely yours. Steen and Strom, it looks like. It's a little bit blurry. To me, it's got Cold War written all over it, and the date on this is 1970. What I find interesting is that there was so much effort in putting, <laughs> there was so much effort put into making sure that these items weren't identifiable rather than just getting rid of them. Like, yeah. why were they with her if you wanted so, like, you could just throw them away. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's part of the mystery, I guess. It may have just been something overlooked, or it may have been a plant, or who knows? I mean, in AAK, what's that? What's that mean? The monogram on the silver spoon. Animal Kingdom. Yes, it's a commemorative silver spoon from Animal Kingdom. <laughs> Hakuna Matata, mofos. Anyway, my sources, the Crime Museum, BBC News, CNN, the local Norway, all things interesting, and NRK, the Isdell woman, the mystery that gripped Norway for nearly half a century. That's really interesting. What you got for me again? <laughs> In September 2017, 11-year-old Alex Batty departed for Marabella, Spain with his mother and grandfather, Melanie and David Batty. Although Alex was scheduled to return to England October 8, 2017, that didn't happen. 
While the police didn't perceive Alex to be in immediate danger, they expressed significant concerns for his well-being and sought the public's assistance in reuniting him with his grandmother, Susan. The last known sighting of Alex was at the Port of Malaga on that same day, the 8th, and subsequent investigations led authorities to suspect that the family may have departed that area and traveled to Morocco, with police believing that Alex was still abroad. As Alex's legal guardian, Susan Caruana, grandmother, revealed that a disagreement about Alex's care likely underpinned his disappearance. Hmm. She received a video message from Melanie Batty on Facebook in which Melanie expounded on the reasons for their actions. Susan disclosed that Melanie and David had previously lived with Alex on a Moroccan commune in 2014 as part of an alternative lifestyle. I want to live in a Moroccan commune. Well, as long as you're doing it by choice, I think that's okay. Yeah, I I want to be a consenting Moroccan commune community member. That's right. Susan attributed their actions to a clash of belief systems, particularly regarding education, as Melanie and David opposed mainstream schooling and traditional lifestyles. Again, both Melanie and David lacked parental guardianship. They were sought by police in connection with Alex's abduction, but their whereabouts remained unknown. As Alex's 12th birthday passed, the police renewed their call for public assistance for any information. Detective Sergeant Pete Morley of the Greater Manchester Police expressed deep concerns about Alex's welfare citing the possibility of him residing in unsuitable conditions and lacking essential care such as health checkups, vaccinations, and education. He's only 12 years old, too. Time passed, and the police issued a public appeal following Alex's 13th birthday. Mm. But unfortunately, no leads materialized. You're right. This starts out pretty dark. Yeah. I'm holding on to the hope that you've given me that it ends well. I'm squeezing the shit right out of the hope. Hope's little eyes popped right out just now. Oh, my. I have hope aggression. It was only on December 13, 2023, that Fabian Acadini, a 26-year-old chiropractic student from Toulouse who worked as a delivery man, encountered a 17-year-old boy walking along the road in southern France. It was discovered that this boy, walking alone at 3 a.m. in the middle of nowhere, was Alex Batty. He was carrying a backpack, a flashlight, and a skateboard. Okay, that's unexpected. Over the following three hours, the two conversed in French and English while Fabian completed his deliveries. The driver grew really suspicious and contacted police. During the drive to the police station, Alex reportedly asked to use the man's phone and sent his grandmother, Susan, a Facebook message saying, I love you. I want to come home. Wow. Investigators believe Alex had been residing in the foothills of the Pyrenees. He claimed to have been hiking alone for four days, drinking from mountain streams and sleeping in the woods. A French official confirmed in a press conference that Alex would soon be reunited with his grandmother, but they had numerous questions in the meantime. It was discovered that Alex had actually left the location where he had been staying with Melanie and David two days earlier, not four, as he initially stated. It was also found that he provided other misleading details to throw investigators off because he was so afraid that his mother and grandfather would be arrested. He knew he had been kidnapped. 
Oh, my God. He knew that the situation was unacceptable and unhealthy, but he still didn't want his mom arrested. Eventually, Alex had disclosed that Melanie and David had led a nomadic life since 2017, frequently moving between houses and living with other families. They joined a religious community of about 10 members engaging in meditation and taking part in discussions on reincarnation often, growing their own food, moving solar panels from one residence to the next, and finding odd jobs to make a living. Alex said that he was made to work from the age of 14, taking on roles like painting and cooking and pot washing and construction to assist his mother and grandfather with daily expenses. He described his life as very, very boring <laughs> due to isolation from peers. He noted that he hardly ever encountered individuals of his own age, having met only one or two friends in the past six years. Well, that's sad. It's terrible. He depicted his nomadic life as very isolated, expressing that he initially decided to return to the UK at the age of 14, but ultimately made the decision to depart on the day he left. Reflecting on his departure, he said, It was a normal day. To be honest, I didn't think I was going to be leaving. It was a very, very quick decision for it to be that day. He just grabbed a skateboard and left. Yep. Where'd he get a skateboard? Nothing says that the religious community was anti-skateboard. Oh, okay. Just wondering. Authorities in France said they thought his mother, Melanie Batty, could be in Finland and that his grandfather appeared to have died, but neither of those details have been confirmed. Hmm. That's us. Alex eventually did confess that he had fabricated certain parts of stories to protect his mother and grandfather, which leads me to believe that his grandfather isn't dead because how do you, I mean, mm -hmm. why would you need to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Without attending school, he had worked and he had no social life and he had serious questions about his future. And that is what led him to contemplating leaving for at least two years. He said that he had even discussed it with his mother and his grandfather, both of them being very concerned that that was his intention. But Alex said, I wouldn't know what was going to happen in my future if I were to stay with my mom. I couldn't get a picture of what life would have been like moving around, no friends, no social life. Despite his desires, his mother opposed his departure, expressing anti-government and anti-vaccine sentiments, and fearing that obtaining his ID in another country would lead him to being placed in care, and told him that he would become, quote, a slave to the system. Which is ironic, because he was a slave to their system. As I said, when Alex was in the custody of officials, they said he would be returned to his grandmother soon, but they had a lot of questions first. And it seems like only some of them were answered. Hmm. But Alex was returned to his grandmother. Alex said that he wants to pursue studies in computer science, cybersecurity, or blockchain development. Oh my God, that's great. But mostly he's expressed his contentment with being back home, saying the house is different now, but still feels the same. The biggest difference is when I left, I was a boy, but now I'm six feet, so I'm too big for my bed. It feels good to be back. You're right. That does have a happier ending. Right. Uh, police are still looking for Melanie and or David Batty and uh, hoping to fill in the blanks when it comes to the story of the disappearance of Alex Batty. So this is this is ongoing. It was like a month ago that he was returned to his grandmother. Another thing I liked about this story, uh, the noticeable lack of charred corpses. Yeah. Right. Same, same. 
I got my information from BBC, Daily Mail, news.com.au, Wikipedia, and The Sun. For those of you who have asked, uh, Lukey is doing very well. He's uh, adapting to his, his new role as a indoor dog, and uh, we just love him. His fur is growing back. His fur is growing back. We are thrilled. He's doing so, so well. And so many have asked. And I am pleased to announce that, yes, we have decided to keep him. Before we leave, want to welcome our most recent members to the Order of Freaks on Patreon. Evelyn, Eve, Book Dragon, huh? uh, Kayla, and Stacy. Guys, thank you so much. Welcome. We appreciate your support. We've got a Zoom coming up, so we're excited to meet you. If you would like to join the order and support the podcast on Patreon, just go to our website, theboxofoddities.com. Click on the link. It says something like support this podcast or some crap like that. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2024. All rights reserved.